the church will be raptured out in the middle of, but prior to the great tribulation, that's usually called the mid-tribulation or the pre-wrath position. And the third position is called the post-tribulation period. They believe that the church will go through the entire tribulation period before the Lord comes back. Well, if you remember in Revelation chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 4, we had the seven letters to the seven churches. And one of the reasons that I hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, that the church will be raptured out before the tribulation, is that after chapter 4 of Revelation, we don't hear about the church again until the concluding chapters of Revelation. In the mid-period, um, the church is not talked about. In fact, the intention seems almost totally on the nation of Israel. Now, at the start of the tribulation, if you believe that, then at the start of the tribulation, the church is caught away in the rapture. But God, in his infinite mercy, does not leave the world without an evangelistic tool. He does not leave them without some way of hearing the truth. And so he creates a powerful evangelistic vehicle to replace the church. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists that we see introduced in chapter 7 begin their ministry at that point. So far in our study, we have witnessed the opening of the first six seals of the seven-seal scroll. And as each of those seals were opened in heaven, judgment came forth on earth. But before the seventh seal is opened, there is a temporary suspension in the chronological account of these events. We have what has come to be called a parenthesis between the judgment of the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh seal. We might call it the eye of the storm because after six seals were opened and the terrible judgments that fell, there is a period of relative calm. Now, the staggering scene at the end of the opening of the sixth seal If you look at chapter 16 and verse 17 of that chapter, you'll find that the end of the opening of that seal and as the judgment fell, that people fled into caves crying out for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. In other words, who is going to be able to survive on earth during this great time of tribulation? And the answer to that is found in chapter 7. There is a group who will be protected and who will be able to stand during that time of tribulation. And it is the group of 144,000 Jews. I want you to look with me first of all this evening at the suspension of judgment. John says, after these things I saw... Four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Four angels, or messengers, are given the duty of standing in the four corners of the earth. Now that doesn't mean that the earth is flat, but rather it is a reference to the four points of the 
compass, north, east, and west. And it also signifies that it covers the whole earth. Their power, we are told, is that the wind should not blow. And the wind here, as described in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 27, is significant of judgment. This is a, quite a change from the last chapter. Before the great natural disasters that came upon the earth, God finally says, okay, hold on for a minute. Hold up for a moment. Verse 2 says, And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees. The first thing that we see happening is that judgment is suspended. This awful time of wrath and judgment of God that is being poured out on the earth, is suspended for a brief time. Well, what's the purpose of that time? Why is judgment suspended? Because God has something to do. He says, hold it back until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. Not only is judgment suspended, but these Jews are numbered and sealed. They are sealed. The seal is the same idea that's mentioned In the book of Ephesians, where God seals believers with the Holy Spirit, it literally means protect or guard. In the ancient world, when the Roman emperor put a wax seal with his insignia on the outside of a scroll, to break that seal was a violation of Roman law. So the seal was a symbol of protection. And that's what God is doing. He's taking 144,000 of these Jews and protecting them from the wrath and the judgment that is to come. So who can stand during the time of wrath? Only those who have received the Lamb's seal of ownership. Secondly, we look at the sealing of the Jewish elect. Picking up in verse 3, second part of that verse, till we have sealed the servant of, of our God on their foreheads, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. And on and on he lists all 12 (coughs) tribes or representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the four angels restrain the judgment of the four winds until another angel marks each of God's servant with his seal on their foreheads. Now, I think that's significant because we later see a satanic counterfeit of that mark. Those who worship the image of the beast are compelled to receive a mark on their forehead or on their, on their hand to receive the mark of the beast in order that he might have his sign of ownership on them. So who are these 144,000 who receive God's seal? There are 
a number of conflicting claims by groups who have in the past claimed to be the 144,000. Interestingly enough, none of them are Jews, but for example, among them are the Jehovah Witness. In 1884, when they began, they claimed to be the 144,000. And they went around proselyting until their, no- their number reached 144,000. They taught that when 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses were brought into the fold, then Jesus would come back and it would be the end of the world. Obviously, since we're living in 2014, that didn't happen in 1884. When they reached 144,000, they revised their figure. They had to revise it several times, and now the Jehovah Witness believe that if they are diligent enough and faithful enough, they will be among the number of 144,000 redeemed. And that's why they are so zealous in their outreach and they're knocking on doors because they want to be in the number, 144,000. There was another false teaching going around perpetuated by the Worldwide Church of God called Armstrongism. According to this claim, sometimes called British Israelism, the Anglo-Saxons, that's most of us, are the lost ten tribes of Israel. We are the lost tribes of Israel. I'm not sure what their position is today since the Worldwide Church of God has swung toward Orthodox Christianity, perhaps the first cult to ever do so. Yet another misconception affecting that passage is called spiritual Israel, which is the belief that the promises of God to Israel now belong to the church. I don't believe any of those are true. But there can be no real question that these people are Jewish. It is, in fact, a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. In Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 3 and 4, It says, the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereof he was to the threshold of the house, and he called the man clothed with linen, which had the rider's rider's inkhorn by his side. And the Lord said unto him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the forehead of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst thereof. Micah chapter 2 and verse 12 says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Berah, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. According to Revelation 7 here, there will be a total of 144,000 of these special messengers or evangelists. He's not saying that there will only be 144,000 Jews saved. He's saying there will be the equivalent of 144,000 Apostle Pauls who are carrying forth the message, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And although the 12 tribes are listed in verse 5 through 8, some substitutions have taken place. Judah, uh, Although fourth born is listed first, Dan and Ephraim are excluded, perhaps because of the sin of adultery that we saw in 1 Kings chapter 12. 
Levi and Joseph are added, while it is true that all the genealogical records for proving what uh, tribal affiliation any Jew has today were burned with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, God still knows. God still knows. Later in Revelation 14.1, we are told that these individuals are sealed with the name of God. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their forehead, signifying that they had true and complete knowledge of God. The Bible says very plainly that God is not through with the nation of Israel. As a nation, as a people, God has been preserving Israel for purpose. If you have your Bibles, look at Romans chapter 11 and verse 1, where the Apostle Paul begins to address that question. In Romans 11, 1, he says, Has God cast away his people? Has God cast away the Jewish people? Meaning the Jews. And his answer is, certainly not. And then in verse 2 of chapter 11, he says, God has not cast away his people who... He foreknew. If you keep reading, it basically says that God blinded the eyes of the Jews until a time when the Gentiles would be the recipients of his glory. And then in verses 11 and 12, he goes on to say, And I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But though their fall, to, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy... Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. That means when they fully come to the gospel. And then he goes on to say in verse 23, if they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Paul is using an analogy, obviously, from plant life. And here is a plant, and here are the roots, and here's the trunk. And something has been cut out. God has cut the Jews out when they rejected Jesus, but he said that he's going to graft them back in if they will stop persisting in their unbelief. And then in verse 24 of that same chapter, he says, For If you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to its nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in the part of what happened to Israel and to the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right now, God is primarily giving his message to the Gentiles. But when the full number of Gentiles have come into the kingdom and the church is fulfilled and the church is raptured, then Israel is going to be his prime directive again and God is not through with Israel. The third thing that we look at tonight is the salvation of of a Gentile multitude. He says in verse number 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, 
which no man could number of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And so he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So one of the elders, representatives of the church, asked, Who are these who are arrayed in white robes? And the answer that he gets is that they are coming out of the great tribulation. They're not church-age believers like you and I. They are tribulation saints. They are individuals who have been saved after the rapture through the ministry of the 144,000 evangelists and who must almost all pay for their faith by martyrdom. Their number, he is told, is innumerable. They are from all nations, all kindreds, all peoples, and all tongues. All, every language group is here. They are pictured as distinct from the church age saints. And I've given you a little diagram in your outline <clears throat> to give you the differences between the church age saints and the tribulation saints. The church age saints are kept out of the tribulation. The tribulation saints are preserved through the tribulation. The church age saints sit on thrones around the throne of God. And the tribulation saints stand... <clears throat> around the throne of God. The church aid saints are wearing crowns. The tribulation saints are without those crowns. The church aid saints are having harps and vials. The tribulation saints having palm leaves in their hands. Church aid saints singing a new song with a loud voice or singing a new song and the tribulation saints crying with a loud voice. We see the church age saints reigning as kings and priests and the tribulation saints preserving him day and night. I think there is enough difference to realize that it is not the same group that is being described. So how are the tribulation saints treated? Well, first of all, we are told they will serve him in verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell with them. Their position before the throne is mentioned twice in these verses, in verse 9 and again in verse 15, perhaps to stress the awesomeness of having access to the very throne of God. Through faith in Christ, in contrast with the awful conditions that we see on earth, John is told that these serve him day and night in his temple. In the Old Testament, the only individuals who were allowed to serve in the temple were the priests. 
These individuals will be busy in the service of the king. Undoubtedly, it refers to heaven, and it stresses that heaven is not not just a rest from physical labor and the pressures of this life, but it is also a place of worship and a place of privileged service, even before the millennial kingdom begins on earth. Day and night, that reinforces the concept of constant service. There's no need for rest. There's no need for sleep or restoration from fatigue. And the temple probably speaks of God's presence, being in the place where God dwells. The fact that they are declared to serve day and night has been taken by some as an indication that this scene takes place during Christ's millennial reign on earth rather than heaven, since there is never any night in heaven. The expression, I think, however, can be understood as meaning simply they were continually serving the Lord. They were delivered from the limitations of this life, and they no longer need sleep as necessary in our earthly life. Verse 15 goes on to say, And he who sits on the throne will dwell with them. Some versions, the New American Standard, for example, translates this as he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. The verb means to live, to dwell, to have one's tent, or to encamp. It was used of setting up or spreading a tent over something. It is suggestive of the fact that God is spreading his presence like a tent over this innumerable host for their protection, for their blessing, and for their fellowship with him. These saints will have access to God's perfect provision, protection, and fellowship in an unlimited way. The second thing we are told is in verse number 16. They are protected. They are protected. It says they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. And the sun shall not strike them nor any heat. They're protected by God. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. Why does it say that in that particular way? Well, we find out a little bit later that the Antichrist, as I talked about earlier, has a mark of loyalty. It's called the mark of the beast. We're told the number 666, whatever that means. The Bible says that anybody on earth during the time of tribulation who does not bear the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell. They'll be unable to buy food. They will be considered social outcasts. And because this group is believers, because they are tribulation saints, they will not accept the mark of the beast, and they are going to hunger, and they are going to thirst. They're going to get burned. It says the sun will not strike them nor any heat. By the way, this is one of the greatest promises of protection in the Bible. We don't use double negatives in English. In fact, when you use double negatives, it's bad grammar. 
But right here in the Greek is a pair of double negatives. In fact, it's almost like a quadruple negative. It's like, this might be an example. A guy walks up to the door and he's trying to get work and he says, you don't know nobody, nowhere who wants nobody to work for them, don't you? That's a lot of negatives. He's just piling negatives one on the other. Doesn't make sense. There are four of them here in the Greek language. They don't cancel each other out, however. They intensify each other. So literally it says, never, no, never, no, never again will they hunger. No, no, never, no, never again will they thirst. The sun will not, never, no, never beat upon them, nor never, never any scorching heat. It's that kind of intensive promise. God says, you've been through the fire on earth during the tribulation, and you are now protected. The first part of verse 17 gives us the third thing, and that is that they are refreshed. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of water. Not only are they protected, they were refreshed. It says in verse 17, the lamb will be among them as their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water. It says in the last chapters of Revelation, there's going to be a spring of living water, a water of life. And Jesus is going to say, anyone who has a thirst, come and drink of the water of life. Come and drink freely. And they are going to be refreshed. It's true when you've been outside on a hot day exerting yourself. There really is nothing more refreshing than ice cold water. And this is a picture of eternal refreshment of heaven. And lastly, we're told in the last part of verse 17 that they are comforted. It says, and God will wipe away every tear. From their eyes. Not only will they be protected and refreshed, they will be comforted. I think this can also be applied to us as well. They'll be comforted in heaven. The Bible says that there'll be no more tears in heaven, but not yet. The point here is that God will wipe away the tears from their eyes. What's the cause of this sorrow? Why are these people weeping? These tears are for all of the tribulation saints who, and what they have had to suffer under the Antichrist. The persecution during the time of the tribulation, as Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 24, is going to be so intense and so terrible that by consent, By comparison, the Jewish Holocaust of World War II is going to look like a Sunday school picnic. That's why they're weeping. That's why when they go to heaven, God has to wipe away the tears from their eyes. But these believers will know God's personal and direct comfort. They'll receive comfort from the great shepherd himself. 
the Lamb, the Lamb of God, will himself shepherd and guide and wipe away those tears. Every single one with the understanding and comfort which he alone can give. What a picture of God's divine grace and mercy this chapter is. Even in the midst of the greatest expression of his wrath and judgment, God still offers mercy and comfort. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you. We understand that judgment is necessary and that judgment is coming. But even in your judgment, you're merciful. Help us to realize that however terrible things may become, they're never beyond your control. You're never surprised, never caught unaware, but fully in control of every aspect of this universe. When we look around our world, sometimes we're fearful because we don't know what's going to happen next. And there are a lot of terrible things going on even in our world today. But help us to rest in the truth that you're still in control. That nothing happens that you don't know about. And nothing happens that you don't limit the scope of it. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to find our confidence in you. We pray that you'd help us to be witnesses for you in this world among people who do not know you and have not received you. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to have a brief invitation. Brother Dan's going to be here. If you're here this evening, God's spoken to you in some way. I want to invite you to come. Maybe God's spoken to you about your relationship with him. Maybe he's spoken to you about following him in baptism, or he's spoken to you about some area of service, or maybe he's just laid on your heart somebody that you need to pray for. These altars are open here for you. Whatever you need to do, would you do it right now while we sing? Verse, no one comes, we're going to close. Have thine own way.